Well, good morning. My name is Dave Gustafson. For those that I haven't met, I have the great privilege of serving as pastor here at the chapel. And we are a church that's really passionate about three big things we talk about all the time. Loving God, loving people, and serving the world. And I have to tell you, I love that mission. Um, not only because I feel that it's, it's true to the mission of Jesus, but it just makes so much sense that as human beings created in the image of God, we're, we're designed to have a relationship with him, a love relationship. When that relationship is the real thing, it always improves our relationships with other people. Because the way that God changes us is he makes us more patient and more compassionate and more sacrificial and more forgiving. And all of that is good for relationships. It's good for society. And then when, when we're loving God and loving people, we so realize that it's just not about us. And that turns us outward and makes us want to make a difference in the world. So loving God, loving people, serving the world, that's the mission that guides us, and all of that is built on the event that we are celebrating today. So I want to base my thoughts today on the very last chapter of Matthew's gospel. It's one of the most well-known accounts of the resurrection of Jesus. And before we read it, I just want to just give us some context. Remember, the words that we're about to read are also being read this morning by refugee Christians in the Middle East, fleeing for their lives. These words are also being read by, by underground secretive house churches in China. These words are being read by tribal village chiefs in West Africa, like the one that few of us met just a couple of months ago. In other words, this is not an American thing. This is not a Western thing. The story of Jesus has rippled across the world for the last 2,000 years. And the thing that we're focusing on and celebrating today is the very center of that story. So Matthew 28, beginning in verse 1. Here's what happened. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I've told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. And this is the word of God. So I want to focus this morning on how Easter can affect our lives. And, and so here's how I want to frame it. That just as Jesus was brought back to life, when we experience him, he brings back to life certain things in us. So this Easter, would you allow the risen Christ to resurrect, first of all, your sense of awe? So let's just think for a moment about what had happened leading up to this event that we're, that we're reading about today. On Friday, Jesus had been sentenced to death. He was crucified by the Roman government. After he was dead, his body was taken off the cross. He was put inside a tomb by the Roman authorities. Saturday was the Jewish Sabbath, so all was, all was quiet that day. 
Sunday morning, these two ladies were the first to venture into this garden where the tomb of Jesus was. And it says that, that when they got to the tomb, they saw this, this person of some sort who was there who told them Jesus actually wasn't there, that he had risen from the dead. And it says that they were, they were afraid and yet they were filled with joy at the same time. And then, as if that weren't surreal enough already, as they were running from the tomb, they ran into Jesus himself, or at least it seemed like it was him. And they were so overwhelmed that they fell to his feet and clasped his feet and, and worshiped. And so I'd like you just to try to imagine the range of emotions that they experienced on that morning. Fear, joy, confusion, shock, reverence. And if I had to think of a word to kind of summarize all those emotions, I think I'd have to use the word awe. These women were in the presence of something bigger than themselves, and it just filled their hearts with awe. I have become convinced that as human beings, we are designed to need a sense of awe and a sense of wonder in our lives. If you're like most people, when you were a little kid, you had all kinds of awe and wonder. Christmas morning, wow. The ocean, wow. Pop-tarts, wow. Like it didn't take much, right, when you were a kid. And then, you grew up and you got more educated and you got beat up by life a little bit. And here's the mistake I think that a lot of us make as we get older and as we learn about the world, we think, okay, I have to make a choice between this whole awe, wonder, faith thing and reason and logic and science kind of thing. Um, there's a growing movement in our culture that, that believes just that. Um, one of their best spokesmen actually was a former professor at Oxford named Peter Atkins who said it like this, it is not possible to be intellectually honest and believe in gods, and it is not possible to believe in gods and be a true scientist, end of quote. And so we might think that, that we need to be either rational or spiritual, but we can't be both. That's the way that Francis Collins used to think. You ever heard of Francis Collins? brilliant young doctor. He was also a committed atheist. And in one of his books, he writes about the day that one of his patients, one of his medical patients, just explained her faith to him. And then she just looked at him and she said, how about you, doctor? What do you believe? And I'll read you in his own words. He said, I stuttered and stammered and felt the color rising in my face. And I said, well, I don't think I believe anything. But that suddenly seemed like a very thin answer. And that was unsettling. And that started him on this, this period of reading and studying and interrogating his Christian friends as he searched for truth. All of that came together about a year after that. Here's how he describes it. On a beautiful fall day, as I was hiking in the Cascade Mountains during my first trip west of the Mississippi, the majesty and beauty of God's creation overwhelmed my resistance. As I rounded a corner and saw a beautiful and unexpected frozen waterfall, hundreds of feet high, I knew the search was over. The next morning, I knelt in the dewy grass as the sun rose and surrendered to Jesus Christ. So obviously, his faith made him intellectually soft, right? Hardly. He went on to direct the Human Genome Project, which was the team that cracked the code of human DNA. Not too shabby. After that, he was appointed director of the National Institutes of Health, where he served for several years. And all of that tells me that even the most brilliant people need awe and wonder in their life, and that you really don't have to choose between fact and faith, between reason and wonder. And I don't want you to hear me wrong, because there are a lot of good reasons 
to believe the historical veracity of what we're reading this morning. There's a lot of evidence that I believe supports and makes it reasonable to believe it. For, for example, the fact that right after this, when the followers of Jesus started publicly claiming he's alive, no one was able to do the one thing that would have shut them up. Nobody could produce a body, which would have ended the movement right there. Or the fact that when you read the gospels, the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection were all women, which if this story were made up, they never would have written it that way because in that culture, women were not considered reliable witnesses. Or the fact that the followers of Jesus were so changed after what they said that they saw that they were willing to go to their deaths rather than deny their faith in Christ. The very fact that this Christian movement, which should not have survived, continues to thrive to this day, gives evidence that something unusual happened. So there's evidence to support it, but you can't prove it. Historical events don't work that way, right? And at some point, you have to make a step of faith. So this Easter, ask yourself, have I bought the lie that I need to choose between reason and faith? As you think about those two women who walked into that garden that morning, they were using their minds, they were gathering information, but there was something going on that was bigger than what their minds could grasp. And it's like that for, for all of us. So would you allow the risen Christ to resurrect your sense of awe? You know, humans are built with this longing for awe and wonder. Have you been trying to fill that with March Madness or romantic love or something else? I'm telling you, the only thing big enough to fill our need for awe is God himself. Secondly, allow him to resurrect your sense of worth. And for this, I want to reach into to the Gospel of Mark, because as Mark tells this scene, he includes one little detail that Matthew didn't include. So Mark chapter 16, verse 7, this is the scene where the, they're at the empty tomb and the angel is talking to the two women. It says, but go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Did you notice the extra detail that Mark adds? Tell the disciples and Peter, why does he specifically mention the name of one of the disciples? Well, I think it must be because of how Peter acted when Jesus was on trial. Peter was an outspoken follower of Jesus, right? Bold, brave, brash, and yet when the pressure was on, Peter folded under the pressure. Three different times, he was challenged by someone, hey, aren't you one of his followers? You're, you're one of the Jesus guys, aren't you? And three times, Peter denied even knowing Jesus failed miserably. And it says that after Peter failed the third time, he was so stricken by his own failure that he broke down and wept miserably. You ever felt like that? And maybe you're sitting here this morning and there's a part of you that feels like you've made a mess out of marriage or you've failed as a parent. Or maybe you're a, you're a student and you've failed as a student, you've disappointed your parents. Or maybe there's some hidden failure that not too many people know about. Some secret addiction to alcohol or to food or to pornography. And you function okay on the surface and people wouldn't know it, but at a deep level, there's a part of you that feels unworthy and ashamed and like God must be disgusted with you. And I think that's exactly how Peter was feeling. And I'm gonna say something strange before I say anything good about this. That feeling that Peter had and that most of us, if we're honest, that we have sometimes, that feeling of, of shame and of failure can actually be a great gift. 
because it humbles us and it shows us our need for the grace of God. We need to see that. Alexander Solzhenitsyn famously said this, if only it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? This is a man who spent 11 years in a Soviet prison camp. He was freezing, he was starving, he did hard labor for 11 years. And it would have been so easy and so natural for him to look at the prison guards and look at the Soviet leaders and say, they're the evil people, I'm the good guy, let's destroy the bad guys. Easy for us to do that, isn't it? You watch the news, you read about some terrorist bombing in a Brussels airport, you're rightfully disgusted and angered by that, and something in you says, those are the bad guys, I'm the good guy. But you know what else we see if we're really honest? We look in our own hearts and we see greed and we see jealousy and we see anger. We realize that some of the problem is actually in us. Alexander Solzhenitsyn got that. He realized that there was darkness in him as well. And if there was gonna be change in the world, it had to start with him. I think Peter got that. And you will never, the good news of Easter will never sound good. <laughs> Unless you, are come, unless you come face to face with the darkness in yourself. So when you're at that point, when Peter was at that point, isn't it awesome that the angel would say, hey, tell the disciples and specifically make sure you tell Peter that Jesus wants to see him. How do you think Peter felt when he heard that news? Really? He's not done with me? And somebody says, well, isn't that great that Jesus was willing to overlook Peter's sin? No, Jesus didn't overlook anything. He paid for it. He paid for it at the cross. And Easter is the ultimate statement that even our worst sins, even the things that have hurt other people the most, even the things that we're most ashamed of can be forgiven. And God can give us a new start and give us a future and a hope. So this Easter, would you allow the risen Christ to resurrect your sense of worth? He knows the worst stuff about you. And yet, because of the cross, he offers you forgiveness. He offers you a future and a hope. And then finally, allow him to resurrect your sense of purpose. Of purpose. I want to continue reading the story in Matthew 28, verse 16. It says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Don't you love the honesty of that? There's still some of the disciples who are like, I don't know. And it was okay. Jesus didn't reject them for their doubts. I love that. Keep going. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Would you think for a moment about what Jesus could have said? He had all his followers gathered. It was kind of his final speech with them. He could have said, hey, we did it. I conquered death. I paid for sins. You're forgiven. So go home. Go back to your life. Try to go to church on Sundays. You know, if you can, listen to Christian music in your car. Don't get into any big trouble. And if you really want to be a fanatic, pray before meals at public restaurants, and I'll see you in heaven. 
Could have said that. Sometimes that's what we kind of act like he said, but he didn't. What did he say? Go. Go. You've seen me come to earth to start this mission, <laughs> and now it's time for you to continue the mission that I have started. Um, when we take that personally, there's a purpose that gets injected into our lives that just was not there before. Um, as a church, we have been so gripped by these words, by this commandment to go. Um, it has so shaped who we are as a church because we've realized that this mission that Jesus started that he calls us to continue, it's essentially about facing outward into the world, seeing the brokenness of this world, and knowing that we have something that can bring healing to that brokenness. Um, primarily, the most primary basic brokenness of the world is a spiritual brokenness. People's relationship with God is not what it should be. And so we will never stop as a church proclaiming the message of the cross of Christ and the empty tomb and the amazing grace of God because that's our, our primary mission. But there's more than that because as we look around this community, we realize there's more brokenness than just spiritual. For example, we've noticed recently that in the state of New Jersey, there's a higher rate of autism births than any other state in the country. And we don't know why that is, but we know that Jesus wants us to go and bring healing into that. So there's this growing army of volunteers at the chapel that is going and, and serving and ministering to families and to children with special needs. We have noticed how often addiction just destroys families, and so we have broadened and expanded our addiction recovery ministry. We've noticed recently a lot of young moms who feel disconnected and, and out of fellowship. And so we started this community of mothers of preschoolers that has just been exploding in growth. There are so many ways that the world around us is broken. And these are teams, or these are things that we've done to step into the brokenness. We've looked out beyond our borders. We've seen a community in Rwanda, more recently a community in Mali, West Africa, that's broken by lack of medical care, lack of hope, lack of good business opportunities. We've been sending teams to make a difference in those communities. Jesus says to us, if the resurrection is real, and it is, you'll go and continue the mission that I started. Think about your own life for a moment. When you get out of bed in the morning, is there something that just springs you out of bed because you say, I've got a purpose. There's a reason that I'm here. Some of you here who live in the town of Montville might be aware that every year, Montville gives out their Citizen of the Year Award. And you may or may not have heard that this year, the recipient, the 2016 Montville Citizen of the Year, was actually a couple um, from Jacksonville Chapel. Their names are Sang and Soonja Kim. And I don't want to embarrass them, um, but I did ask them if I could talk about them, and they said, okay. Um, so I want to tell you what, what the deal is with this, because it's such a great example of purpose. Um, about 20 years ago, when he was in his mid-60s, Sang retired from his job as a college librarian. Time to work on the golf swing, right? You can tell I don't play golf. Is that how you do? <laughs> well, not quite for Sang. Since that time, he and Sunja have led 80 teams to places like Peru and Jamaica and Mali, West Africa. They have recruited over 1,300 doctors, nurses, support staff, and they have brought medical care, among all the other work they do, they've brought medical care to over 60,000 people around the world. The guy's a librarian, for crying out loud. And he and his wife do this work simply because their hearts have been so gripped by the reality of the risen Jesus Christ, and it's just given them a purpose that's carrying them through retirement. And I have to be honest, I mean, this is a personal thing, I'm pushing 50 next year, 
And there are times when my mind goes into the future now and I think a little bit about retirement and fishing in the Caribbean somewhere. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the example of people like the Kims reminds me of just the sheer beauty and joy of having a purpose that's bigger than my, my little hobbies. If the resurrection of Christ is real, and it is, it infuses our lives with a sense of purpose, and it comes out in so many different ways, but it's a purpose that we would never have without him. Here's the main thing I want you to hear this morning. This whole Easter concept is not a church thing. It's not a, a religious thing. If it's real, and it is, it changes the way we look at life. And I have experienced some of this and I'm still growing in it. I've tried to share a few examples this morning of some people that have kind of lived this or living this in their lives. I don't even know a lot of you and I so want this for you. I want you to have this sense of awe that you were built to experience. I want you to have this sense of worth because of the grace and forgiveness of Christ. I want you to be driven by this sense of purpose that gets you out of bed in the morning. And all those things are only given by the risen Jesus Christ. So here's the last question I wanna ask you. Is there something in you that is saying, I'm being called, I'm being called by Christ himself to have a relationship with him? As we close today, I'm gonna to offer a prayer and I'm gonna pray it out loud and I'm gonna just welcome you to just grab this and make it your own prayer and express it to God. It's a prayer of accepting Christ in a personal way and saying what he did is for me. So would you rise to your feet as we close this morning? Let me invite you to bow your head and close your eyes with me as we turn to God together. And this morning, if you need to make this personal to you, Say something like this to God. God, thank you for bringing me here this Easter Sunday. I realize today that I need you. I need the, the awe and the worth and the purpose that only you give. I realize that Jesus went to the cross to receive judgment for my sin. And I accept your forgiveness. Would you enter my life? Make my life what you want it to be. I give myself to you today. In the name of Jesus, the risen Savior, amen. Amen. Well, on behalf of Jacksonville Chapel, thank you so much for being with us today. May God bless you and your family with a very happy Easter.